Good morning. Welcome, everybody. My name is Sarah, and I'm a deacon here. You can follow along with today's scripture reading um, in your bulletin or on the free app, the Sojourn app. You'll also find announcements on the back of the bulletin about upcoming events, such as the women's ministry kickoff that's next weekend and the men's breakfast. So together, let's hear the word of the Lord. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. We are beginning a brand new sermon series called Bliss or Mess, Marriage in God's Kingdom. And I was challenged by one of you to begin this series by reenacting the wedding scene in The Princess Bride. So, <laughs> marriage, marriage is what brings us together today. Now, in our culture, we dream that our wedding day is the beginning of happily ever after, the dream within a dream. But then we think back to our childhood experiences and the lives of people we know, maybe even our own adult relationships, and we realize that life more often reads like the lyrics of Don Henley's End of the Innocence, when happily ever after fails and we've been poisoned by these fairy tales. The lawyers dwell on small details since daddy had to fly. Our Heavenly Father loves us with a staggering love, and His Word gives us the blueprint for marriage in all its fullness, and His Spirit gives us the power to live into it. So, let's dive in. We're in a letter called Ephesians. That was, If you're new to the church, if you're new to Christianity, Ephesians is a letter in the New Testament that was written to a group of Christians in an ancient city called Ephesus, hence the name Ephesians. It was written by a minister named Paul who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament and was the founder of the church in Ephesus. So now it's several years later, and he's writing this letter to his old congregation. And in chapter 5, verse 21, he says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this and further indicates that Paul is carrying on his topic from earlier in the letter, which is all about being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This culminates in believers submitting to one another, preferring each other over themselves, honoring, loving each other, supporting each other. So I submit to you, you submit to me, we all submit to each other. That's the way we roll in the family of God. So we have verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means dot, 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 verse 25. For husbands, this means dot, dot, dot. What is the this Submit to one another, mutual submission. To make this even more clear, what Paul is saying in verses 22 and 25 is, for wives, submit to one another means. For husbands, submit to one another means. Now, he expresses a similar thought in his first letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Note this is talking about giving of your own free will, not taking and overriding someone else's will. So, everything we're going to discuss today, the rubric is submit to one another. Here we go. 
Frolicking into the woods of Ephesians 5, verse 22. Four wives, this means submit to, one, to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, he's just told all believers to submit to one another. In Colossians, he told all believers to do everything they do as if they're doing it for Jesus. Here, he specifically asks wives to take this posture with their husbands. Wives, your challenge is to honor and respect him regardless of whether he deserves it, but because Jesus deserves it, and to extend to your husband the grace that Jesus extends to you. And it's to recognize that he'll need your help to become more like Jesus. Men have always needed women's help. Eve was created to be Adam's helper. And this is not like Eve or, or Adam is the owner of a grocery store and Eve is the little helper that restocks the shelves after hours. In fact, the, the Hebrew word from whence we get the English helper means a whole lot more than we think of when we hear this word helper. The, the Hebrew word uh, is azer. Uh, it's a word that's only used 21 times in the entire Bible. Two times it refers to woman or Eve, womanhood. Three times this word azir refers to ally nations that Israel was appealing to for help or for rescue from a common enemy. And the other 16 times when this word is used, it refers to God himself as the helper of Israel, the helper of his people. So this is a powerful, powerful word. Could women survive in a world without men? Maybe 100 years until the species dies out. How long could men survive in a world without women? I, I give us 100 days. Uh, maybe three really fun days, followed by a 97-day descent into terror. Uh, by day 100, you know somebody's getting a hold of those nukes. And that's it. Men need women to be joint heirs in this kingdom of life, to be co-regents over the earth. So Ephesians 5, verse 23. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. Is headship, this, this concept, the husband is head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church, is this a system of command and control? Does it come from some inherent female superior, or inferiority of intellect, willpower, or leadership skills. Well, sometimes men have used verses in the Bible to make that claim, such as 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. Paul is writing these words to help Timothy pastor the people of Ephesus, the same people to whom Paul is writing today's letter, the same people that Paul had at one time pastored. Does this passage indicate that women are more gullible or susceptible to temptation? Well, do women or men primarily keep the sex industry in business? Now, I know that there are women who look at porn or visit prostitutes or strip clubs, but by and large, follow the money trail. It's men. From which sex come nearly all serial killers? Child molesters. History and cold, hard data teach us that women as a sex are not more susceptible to temptation than men. Could it be that women just don't have the intelligence? Should let the men do the thinking. Bad news, fellas. 
Current studies show that girls outperform boys in all subjects in primary school. They go to college at greater rates. They graduate at greater rates. They earn more advanced degrees. And in another letter, Paul says that both women and men can be deceived like Eve. He's writing to second, uh, the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. So, what do we make of 1 Timothy 2? First, Paul had to combat several battle of the sexes type errors that were going on in Ephesus, like the worship of the fertility goddess Artemis. Her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was led by female priests. Male priests uh, served underneath the female priests, and they indicated their subservience to Artemis and to the female priests by undergoing ritual castration. That battle for control left men not whole. More common in churches were heresies that taught a different version of Genesis. In Ephesus, there was a myth that Eve was created first and that she was Adam's teacher. According to these myths, women should dominate their husbands because headship actually belongs to them. Paul knows the real Genesis story, that Adam was created first, and that Eve's decision in the Garden of Eden led to something bad, not good. Here's what we miss when we get caught up on whether Eve's deception means that she or all women are more gullible than Adam, than manhood. Eve didn't receive the command about forbidden fruit from God. Adam did. Eve wasn't created yet. Because Eve told the serpent about this command, we assume that Adam passed on God's command to Eve. Now, this doesn't mean God never speaks directly to women. There are many female prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but here in the beginning, God did not speak directly to Eve. So, quick refresher, and I, and I promise we're going to bring this around. You're going to find how this relates to your actual marriage here today in 2019. We're going to run through Genesis 1 and 2 very quickly. We'll put scriptures on the screen. If you want to write them down, you can read them later, but I'm going to move very quickly here. Genesis 1, verse 28, indicates that women will share authority and dominion over the earth. Can a woman be president? Sure. Can a woman run General Motors? A woman does run General Motors. Now, men, this is not the time to mutter anything under your breath about the quality of GM cars. If you're a Ford man, just nip it in the bud. All right, in Genesis 1, we, we see this overview of creation. Genesis 2 gives us more detail. We find that the man was created first, woman was created second. So in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, Adam is commanded not to eat the forbidden fruit. Eve isn't created yet. Then Genesis 3, verse 3. Now Eve has been created. The serpent approaches her. He begins to converse with her. Eve responds to the serpent by quoting the command, but she doesn't get it quite right. And the serpent uses this opening to deceive her. Verse 6, we learn that Adam was with Eve the whole time. Not once did he stand up to the serpent. Not once did he say to Eve, no, that's, that's not quite what God told me. Maybe I didn't pass it on correctly. Here's what God said. Watch out for this serpent. He is lying. Adam was no better than Eve. In fact, his transgression was far worse. But God did give him a different responsibility than he gave Eve. 
He failed miserably, so thanks be to God for sending a second Adam. This is one of Paul's titles for, for Jesus, the second Adam. When we finish our passage in Ephesians, we'll learn more about what happened in Genesis, how uh, Jesus, as our second Adam, changes things, and how it makes all the difference in your marriage, your happiness, your legacy. But for now, what does a submissive wife do? Well, leadership isn't mentioned much in the Bible. Servanthood is. But leadership is a big deal in our culture. So let's look at one way that leadership comes in in the context of a wife. Number one, the wife is like the church and how it relates to Jesus. We just read that. Number two, the church is all of us. So number three, if we want to know what it means, what it looks like to honor Jesus, what example do we have? The Christian wife. This is leadership at its highest example. If you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, hopefully my sermon will help you do that. But if you really want to see it in action, you look at Kristen's life, particularly how she relates within our family. What might a submissive wife look like? Does she cook, clean, take care of the kids, and nothing else? Well, Proverbs 31 is known as the godly wife chapter in the Bible, and there's a lot in there about the home. You can be a homemaker, you can be a stay-at-home mom and be a wonderful, godly example. But God may equip and call you to other things, and if he does, that's good too. So Proverbs 31, verse 16. She goes to inspect a field and buys it. With her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Today, this might mean uh, she inspects a restaurant and buys it. With her earnings, she franchises. She inspects a tech startup, joins the board of directors. With her earnings, she advises them to expand the product line. Verse 17, she is energetic and strong, a hard worker. She makes sure her dealings are profitable. This is not some fearful, timid woman who shirks into the background, sure that she would never have anything intelligent to add to the discussion. In fact, verse 26, when she speaks, her words are wise, and she gives instructions with kindness. By the way, the entire book of Proverbs is about the accumulation of wisdom. The Hebrew word for wisdom is hakma, which is grammatically feminine. And Proverbs personifies wisdom, capital W, wisdom, as a woman. In other words, if Proverbs were a graphic novel, one of the main characters would be a female superhero named Wisdom who saves people from the villain, foolishness, like uh, Captain Marvel versus Thanos, but without all the lasers and the flying and things like that. And what is the effect of the Proverbs 31 woman on a godly husband? Is he emasculated, embarrassed, is he ashamed? Verse 28. Her husband praises her. There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. It's not that a godly wife can't do lots of things in the world. It's about the posture of this wife to her husband. She is his azer, his strong helper, his ally. The submissive attitude she extends toward every child of God, she expresses most devotedly to her husband. And what of this fellow, the godly husband? Back to Ephesians, verse 23. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. Now there's a danger here. We, we start to read this and we come to, for a husband is the head and we stop there uh, and we turn our brains off 
because we think we already know what this means because we use this expression all the time. And so I think, okay, wait a minute, I use this. Like, so if, if I say uh, the president is the head of the country, that means the president is the boss of the country. So I guess I'm the boss. The danger is reading a contemporary understanding of a metaphor back into the Bible when the Bible itself will explicitly tell us what this head is supposed to do, how this head is supposed to act. So then we continue on and we read, as Christ is the head of the church, we stop there again, we think, okay, Christ, Jesus, okay, yes. So in the context of marriage, basically I'm Jesus. Um, What do I know about Jesus? Well, I mean, he's wiser than the disciples, so I guess I'm wiser than my wife. Uh, Hmm, he's the king of kings. I'm king of the castle. The Bible will explicitly tell us the way a husband ministers like Jesus within the context of marriage. So let's let the Bible interpret the Bible instead of bringing our own ideas into it. Now, the Ephesian men, they had grown up in a highly patriarchal culture, much more than ours today. So they would have heard all their lives, the husband is the head. So when, when they start reading this, they were probably saying, yeah, forget about being whole. We are in control. But Paul reverses the cultural expectations of head according to the radical values of God's kingdom. Verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. This is crazy talk in Greco-Roman culture. Ephesian men may have said, Paul, that's not what it means to be the head. You know, they were like Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. They believed in protecting the head at all costs. The body sacrifices for the head. It's the head's job to ensure self-preservation. It was the duty of a leader, a husband, a manly man to see to his needs and to make sure his family sees to his needs. A famous Greek historian named Plutarch wrote, his first duty is to save the one who saves everything else. So self-absorbed. This this kind of attitude does not come from Jesus. It comes from this meathead. Don't imitate Plutarch. When Paul began this metaphor, Ephesian men would have expected him to say, the head is the leader and provider of the body. He should look out for number one, and the body should serve and sacrifice for the sake of the head. Christian men will define headship as the authorization to serve and sacrifice. Verse 26, so Paul has just written that Christ gave his life for the church. He continues to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Now notice these words that I've emboldened here, clean, washed, cleansing, without a spot or wrinkle, blemish. Christ's love for his church is described in a series of metaphors of Domestic chores normally performed by women in patriarchal societies. Giving a bath, providing clothing, doing laundry. What? Are Christian men supposed to be sissies? Why not use macho warrior metaphors like in Revelation where Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth? That would have been cool. This is headship. Gets worse. Verse 28. In the same way, 
Husbands ought to love their wives just as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. Again, the domestic chores described here are typical of women's work. The husband feeds and cares. This word uh, cares is more literally translated as nurture. Paul uses the same word to describe the apostles in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now these are just metaphors. Paul is not saying, I command the husband to cook and clean. But Jesus himself did cook his church breakfast while she went fishing. John 21, verses 9 through 13. Jesus in the flesh washed her feet. John 13, 1 through 17. Jesus in the flesh said in Luke 22, verse 25, In this world the kings and great men lord it over their people, but among you it will be different. Who is more important? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course. But not here, for I am among you as one who serves. Because Paul understood Jesus, his message about male headship was, I know you're used to this head metaphor meaning one thing, but not here. Among you, it will be different. The point about these headship metaphors in the Proverbs 31 woman isn't that all men should be cooking and cleaning and all women should have a job outside the home. The point is it's not about control. It's about being whole. There's not some list. Here's this big, great big list of tasks that only the wife does and that all wives must do. And here's this big list of tasks that only the husband does and all husbands must do. And only the wife is nurturing and only the husband is strategic. When we understand this, then who should cook or cut the grass or do the budget or lead the children's devotionals? Don't become these insurmountable obstacles. Two spirit-filled Christians whose only competition is to outdo one another in showing affection, sit down and decide, which of us is better at this task? Which of us enjoys it more? How can we make our home work best and honor God the most? When Kristen and I were dating, we first started dating, we started out very traditional. I asked her out. She said yes. I drove to her house in my car, picked her up, took her to a restaurant. We continued that pattern for a couple months. I don't remember how uh, we came to this conclusion, but, but finally, we realized that I don't like to drive, and I have no direction sense. Kristen likes to drive, and you could drop her off blindfolded in the middle of Siberia. She's going to find her way home by supper after having scored a, a deal on borscht and winter clothes. <laughs> you see this cat around town now, 90% of the time she's driving. Ephesians 5, 31. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Man, this is where you finally get to accept a great adventure challenge. You get to lead the way in righting a wrong from the dawn of time. Adam's responsibility to Eve, who was created from his side, is to cleave to her so they might be one. Paul has just quoted Genesis 2, verse 24, so let's go there. Uh, at this point of Genesis chapter 2, we've just witnessed the creation of woman. Then it immediately says, this, the creation of woman, explains 
why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined or cleaves to his wife, and the two are united into one. The creation of woman is the climax of Genesis chapter 2, the climax in all of God's creative works in Genesis. God puts Adam to sleep. He creates Eve from his side, not his feet. Let the hearer understand. Adam wakes up. He takes one look at her and falls head over heels. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so when woman is created, poetry is born. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and the two are united into one. It all went south for Adam and Eve because they gave in to temptation and Adam failed to cleave to his wife in the episode with the serpent. He even distanced himself from her when God confronted him. Fostering unity is the husband's primary duty. He'll give himself for his wife rather than abandon or blame her because he imitates the second Adam, not the first. In Christ, husbands will no longer separate from their wives, but instead champion the unity that God intended from the beginning. This is the essence of headship, to be the champion, cheerleader, and guardian of one flesh union that shows the world what union with Christ is like. What's great is that any husband can do this. It doesn't matter who's been a Christian longer, who's read the Bible more, who's more assertive, who's more extroverted. She doesn't have to play dumb to let you do this, like when she lets you win at Scrabble. Nor does it matter who drives the car or makes more money. Uh, Kristen and I both work for the church. I'm full-time. She's part-time, so I make more money. Several years ago, I worked full-time at the church. She worked full-time at a law firm. So law firm, church, guess who made more money? Doesn't matter. By the way, if you think it's unmanly to derive any financial support from a woman, you should take that up with Jesus. Luke 8, verse 1. He took his disciples, his 12 disciples with him, along with some women. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus. So men, your wife can be a Hebrew scholar who serves on Bible translation committees, and you can work at the Jiffy Lube. doesn't matter. You can still be the champion, cheerleader, and guardian of one flesh union. It's about the posture of your heart to be life-giving, foundational. To be the head is to be life-giving and foundational, as Adam literally was for Eve, as Jesus is life-giving and foundational to the church. In light of Genesis 2, verse 24, it's a posture that says to your wife every day, I'm sticking to you like glue as we follow Christ together. Outside the kingdom of God, men leave. We have an epidemic of men abandoning their families. And many who don't literally run away become workaholics instead, hiding behind a false view of the Bible that says men are just supposed to bring home a good paycheck. Others hide in their hobbies and their vices. But among us, it must be different. We don't leave, we cleave. Adam ran from Eve by blaming her. He was willing to sacrifice her to save himself. But now the husband who is in Christ will give himself for his wife. Paul says 
the order of creation, Adam first, then Eve from Adam, the order of creation and the establishment of marriage happened to tease out a great mystery at the beginning of the Bible that is revealed at the end. Here it is. Woman comes from man who is glorified in her. He leaves his home and cleaves to her so they can be one in all of life. The church comes from Christ who is glorified in us. He left his home in heaven to cleave to us so we could be one in him for life eternal. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. And where does this relationship lead? Number one, Christ, our head, has ultimate authority. He has authorized men as husbands to represent him in a very specific way that we've described this morning. Number two, the church is Christ's body, which derives its life from him and is enthroned with him. We share his throne. Number three, we share Christ's inheritance. And this comes with awesome power and responsibility. No one was better at empowering others than Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Don't you realize that someday we believers, we the church, we the bride of Christ, will judge the world? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? The analogy between Christ and the husband encourages men to share authority and treat women like our head, Jesus Christ, treats us. If anyone in this world must be concerned for the status of women, it is Christian men. And we must keep the metaphor the metaphor. God has given us a wonderful metaphor, head and body. The point is one flesh. One flesh union is the point of the passage, the point of this metaphor. Too often in the church, we, uh, without even thinking, we exchange this good metaphor that God has given us for another metaphor. The boss and the secretary. There is nothing particularly surprising about a boss and a secretary one day parting ways, perhaps going to different companies. You get a new boss, you get a new secretary. There is something shocking and disturbing about the image of a body and a head severed from one another. And this is what gets at the heart of how seriously God takes marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 33. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This reversal of pagan headship leads to the fulfillment of the one flesh union of Genesis and enables the husband and the wife to flourish as they honor God together. It's not about control. It's about being whole. So here's my Monday challenge to you today. Uh, it is simply to sign up for Redeemed Marriage, which we uh, told you about. We handed you a bulletin when you came in. It's, there's also a bulletin on the app. There's a sign-up link there. Uh, this is uh, going to take place on Friday, September 13th. Yes, that's Friday the 13th. Stay away from guys in hockey masks, but come to redeem marriage. This is the first of several things we're going to do over the next six to eight months to strengthen and equip marriages in our church. So we hope to see you there. Uh, grow together, learn together, worship together. Uh, receive tools to, to help your marriage together. So do that. Sign up for redeem marriage. Also, Begin a dialogue this week. You'll see in your bulletin three discussion questions. If you look on the bulletin on your app, there are 10 discussion questions. We'll also put all 10 of those questions on Right Now, right now Media later today, along with my sermon manuscript and this uh, sermon video, so look for that. 
Work through these 10 discussion questions as a husband and wife. Work through them with friends. Work through them in community group this week. This includes singles. Singles, we need you. Uh, married couples, a lot of times, are, we can't see the forest for the trees, but you have an outside perspective and you're a valuable member of this body of Christ and you are part of our union with Christ, what this ultimately points to. So we need singles working through these things with us. Work through these questions. And on next week, Pastor Jonah will continue this series and he's going to talk about community and friendship, outside friendships within the context of a marriage. So come back for that. Sign up for Redeem Marriage. Work through these discussion questions. Finally, about singles. What about them? Are we saying that singles can't be whole? Well, marriage symbolizes the union of Christ and his church. Singles. If you're looking at the example of friends in a godly marriage, you're looking at the embodiment of your hope not hope that you'll find someone, although there's nothing wrong with praying for that. Your hope is they give me a picture of a union that I have and that I know I will enjoy for all eternity with a Savior whom I will see face to face and be one with forever. And the Savior stopped at nothing to be with you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one. And after giving thanks he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine, like this one. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. Remember what I've done for you. He didn't leave. He cleaved. In just a moment, you'll come forward in the back half of the room, you'll go to the back. We'll have communion stations by the sound booth. You'll walk up to a woman, herself called to represent the body of Christ, and she will be holding a loaf of bread, which also represents the body of Christ. You'll tear off a piece of bread. She will look you in the eye and say, the body of Christ was broken for you. You'll dip that bread into a cup held by a man, himself called to serve to sacrifice like Christ, to pour out his life like a drink offering. And he will say, the blood of Christ was shed for you. It's not about control. It's about being whole, united in Christ, with each other, to the Father, by the Spirit, because of the cross. In this way, we participate together in the eternal, divine, triune life of our God. If you're not a Christian, I'd ask that you don't come forward and partake of communion because this is a covenant renewal ceremony. You wouldn't go through a renewal of vows with someone that you'd never married in the first place, so it wouldn't make any sense for you to come forward. But instead, I urge you to pray at your seat, to pray this week to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and we can prepare you in the weeks to come to be baptized and begin partaking of this covenant renewal ceremony with us each week. If you need gluten-free communion elements, you'll find them in this far corner over here, my left, your right. Let's pray.